Hello, and welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. I wanted to start this week with a big thank you to those of you who have been using my offer codes for all of my sponsors. That's the way they know that it's worth it to come back. I always put a link and the offer code in the show notes, so if you ever come across a company you want to try out, go ahead and reference them there. By using these codes, you guys are supporting me and the show in a huge, huge way. Now, this week is a little mashup of sorts. I've been sitting on a few true stories for a long time now. Seriously, I found a few that I have had since October. True stories tend to be super short, so it takes a while to compile them into an entire episode. This weekend, I also happened to write out an episode about a paranormal event slash phenomenon that was also in itself not enough for a whole show. So I thought, why not smash these together into one big episode? All of the stories you'll be hearing tonight were told to me to be true. So sit back, relax, and prepare for some real-life scares. The first story I want to tell to you tonight is from Sam Lawrence, and she called it Haunted Homeless Shelter. I am a graduate student in Kansas. Aside from living in a very old apartment building with a lot of mysterious creaks and groans, I am doing an internship at a woman's homeless shelter that is very haunted. Plum Place is a woman's homeless shelter that caters to adult women down on their luck. The house was built by the Plum family in the 1860s. Several generations lived in the beautiful old mansion. Some died there. The house was donated by the Plum family when Ellen Plum died. She was a huge suffragette and her children donated the house in her memory to always be used in the service of women. Mrs. Plum likes to keep an eye on the place, comforting women with a friendly pat on the shoulder, playing the piano, and leaving the lingering scent of old perfume. Mr. Plum is not so thrilled with a house full of women. He leaves cigar smoke and makes one feel glared at. Many of the residents have left without notice after hearing or seeing mysterious things. Voices when no one is there, thumps and flickering lights. I once had a lady come into the office, insisting she watched a man walk past the window, blocking out the light while she was on the porch smoking. I showed her that that part of the house was locked, and had been for days, and so of course I volunteered to work the night shift there. The first thing that happened to me was while I was taking a tour of the building. There's a grand ballroom in the attic, of course, and this is where the old servants' quarters are. While I was walking down the stairs, we heard a bell ring. A bell that was once used to summon the maid. And a bell that hasn't been hooked up in decades. I have heard someone humming, seen small figures peek around corners, heard piano music, seen light orbs in real life with my own eyeballs, not a camera. But speaking of cameras, one of my jobs is to monitor the security cameras, which you can imagine picks up a lot of unusual things. Shadows, lights coming on and off, and crazy amounts of orbs. I once saw, for only a second, a small pair of white baby shoes take a few steps towards me and disappear. There are records that show multiple infant deaths, but we call this small spirit Tommy. 
In the ballroom, I've heard knocks as intelligent responses to questions, and there have been instances of mentally ill residents having breakdowns in certain rooms. We can't put addicts or schizophrenics in room 18, because they will relapse. This has happened many, many times. A woman drank herself to death in room 18. Most of my experiences in the house have been pleasant. Last Sunday, I stopped by the house to finish a task before Monday, and as I walked through the door, juggling an armful of files, I saw someone walk through the doorway ahead of me. But of course, there was no one there. And during a group therapy session, we once heard footsteps walk up to our table and stop. I'm sure this house has 50 years of ghost stories or more, but these are mine. Hope you enjoy. Love the podcast. Keep up the good work. Love, coffee-colored revolutionary. This next story was submitted by Noah, and they have something short but very spooky for us. When I was still living with my parents, I shared a room with one of my sisters. Our beds were on opposite sides of the room, so our feet were facing each other when we slept. One night, I was having an awful time sleeping and was wondering what the fuck was going on. I'd taken Zequil and it wasn't kicking in. I remember glancing over to where my dresser was, to my right, and seeing a small, black figure there. Probably about two feet tall, darker than black actually, like it was a complete lack of color. It wasn't moving, more so vibrating. I felt buzzing in my ears and smelled static, if that's even possible. I felt my whole body freeze. The temperature dropped and I understood what people meant by hair raising. I wanted to flip my blanket over my head because otherwise I wasn't sure what to do. But it took a full five minutes before I had control of my limbs. When I was under the covers, I felt my mattress dip, as if someone or something had stepped up onto it or sat down. I thought it was my sister because she would occasionally jump on my bed from hers to sleep with me or fuck around when she wasn't tired, but I didn't hear her laughing or breathing, just silence. I laid there fighting the urge to look until the mattress moved again and I could literally feel the cold move away. I have no idea how long it stayed. I slowly regained the use of my limbs, and they got that tingling feeling like they were waking up. I stayed under the blanket just in case. I didn't fall asleep, and when the sun came up, I got my sister to respond to me and she said she had woke up around the time I remember seeing shit, and had felt the cold too. Honestly, her confirming it was the most chilling part. This was the first of three times I'd see this little shit until I moved out. I keep a sigil my partner has made for me in each house I live in ever since, and that seems to keep it at bay, because I haven't seen it since I nailed it up over my door. This next story was submitted to me by someone called The Strange Ore. Here goes, I'm not sure if it is a dream or some kind of dream encounter. They are back again, the night terrors. I used to get them all the time as a small kid, from three years old till twelve. My dream back then was me and a group of friends were walking together. 
When all of us discover a house in the forest, the house looks like a kooky children's haunted house, all of us dare the others to go through. The clearing held no lines, no one. The place looked deserted. All of us chickens decided to go in together. Inside were fake cobwebs, clear plastic skeletons, coffins with hay bale corpses, moaning soundtracks, a couple of screams, chains rattling soundtrack. All of us were laughing about our previous fears. Outside the house, a couple of us even flapped our arms and made chicken noises at the others. I spotted it at a dusty door with a slanted sign saying treasure room. My eyes widened and a big grin slowly growing on my face. Guys, let's go get treasure, I said giggling. My friends all agreed and we entered a dark hallway lit by candles. The hallway was littered with doors. We suddenly hear a voice above us. A recording? Beware, traveler. Beyond each door is one or the other, a treasure or a horror. So tread lightly, pick wisely. This only excited my friends. They all ran fast before I could tell them to stick together. Each friend went into a door. So me, not wanting to miss the fun, started to wander the hall. It seemed like too long I walked and the hall seemed to endlessly stretch. A soft cry interrupted the walking I was doing. Hello? I called out in a whisper. The crying continued on. I followed the crying. I followed for minutes further and further till I saw a small form hunched down. She sat in a corner in a dirty bottomed dress. Her back to me, I could see she had long hair. She wrapped her arms around her knees and was crying into them. My heart melted. The poor thing probably lost her mom. Sweetie, it's okay. Are you lost? My voice low and sweet to calm the child. I can't find it. I looked and looked. Her small voice sobbed. What? What did you lose? I can help you look, I said. In the background, I hear the gut-wrenching screams of my friends. But the child kept me from checking that out and I couldn't abandon her. Come on, I said. I reached out and went to touch her back. She slowly stood and started to turn slowly towards me. My body was slammed with warning and adrenaline. Don't look. Don't see. My mind whispered so loud my body reacted for me. It turned and ran like it was on fire. I heard something big behind me. My mind refused to let me look. Back outside, I was met by my friends. They all had this hollow, shocked look on their faces. None of us spoke after that night to each other about the house, about anything. All I can remember is the need to get away. I'm pretty sure if I had seen the face, I wouldn't be here today. This next submission comes from Patrick in Cleveland. He titled it, The Ouija Board Stalker. The following is an account based on actual events. The names of those involved will be changed as I do not wish to draw attention to any family or friends involved. The story might seem anticlimactic or lack a certain dramatic flair you are accustomed to, but it is true as best as I can describe it. I grew up in Cleveland. The late 80s and early 90s had 
Most of my family living on two streets. I could walk across the street to visit my cousins. I have twelve. Or across through a backyard to the next street to visit the rest of them. We were pretty tight. We grew up with stories of our parents' adventures when they were young. My mom has eight brothers and two sisters. So naturally, as teenagers, we wanted to have our own stories. My family eventually moved out of the city, but we stayed close. There used to be a gathering every weekend. I had six male cousins and six female cousins, plus or minus ten years. One night, me and a few of my younger cousins were playing video games in the basement of my aunt and uncle's house when we heard a commotion outside. They were burning something in the backyard. They're drunk, we figured. Let them do their thing. We were playing Super Nintendo and somehow they got the arcade game Centipede and we could play it for free. Kids these days won't get that reference, but it was a big deal at the time. The next weekend we had a family party again at the same house. My cousin Erin comes into the basement with an expression on her face like she just met Justin Timberlake. Young people might not get that reference either. A bit too excited, she runs down the stairs with a box in her hands and proclaims, Hey guys, guess what I found outside? It was a Ouija board, brand new as if it had just been opened. Come on, sissies, let's have some fun. Two of my cousins agreed, and I was bored, so I agreed as well. We brought out the board, put our fingers on the planchette, and Aaron says, I'm looking for ghosts. Is anyone here? Mark insisted it was a dumb idea, but Laura asked another question. With our hands on the planchette, she said, Hello, we would like to speak to any presence nearby. Is anyone there? With all our hands on the planchette, Laura confidently said, I'm Laura. These are my cousins, Mark, Aaron, and Patrick. I'm moving to the center of the board. If you're here, tell me your answer. The planchette moved to yes. Okay, what's your name then? Aaron shouted out. The planchette moved F-R-E-D. Mark immediately objected. Fred, fuck you, what do you do then? The response chilled us to our core. I-H-U-N-T. Laura immediately stopped us. She removed her hands and said, Fuck you, Mark, stop messing with us. Mark removed his hands and said, Fine. If you're real, you'd have no problem following us? Screw this shit. Aaron and I still had our hands on the planchette. Without hesitation, the planchette moved to yes. Aaron and I freaked out. Our parents heard us, of course, and rushed to see what the problem was. Aunt Elizabeth was the first on the scene. Where did you get that? She exclaimed. It was in the backyard, Mom, I swear. Aaron pleaded her case. My family, eight aunts and uncles, my parents included, just stood there, stunned. They looked at the back of the board. Her initials were scribed in the bottom right-hand corner. It didn't burn. They made sure it did that night. Fast forward a couple years. I move in with my girlfriend at the time. Patrick, can you stay up for a little bit? I swear I saw someone watching us last night. I did, of course, but the next day I told her that we need to sleep with the door closed. 
She didn't like that for whatever reason. So one night, the door is open just a bit. She wakes me up in tears. Patrick, someone is here. I don't own a gun at this time, so I grab my knife and go to the living room. All the cabinet doors are open. Move forward several years. I'm single with three cats, all adopted. I'm not a crazy cat person just yet. I sleep with my door closed. Some nights I get a knock on my door. Some days I'm at home doing my thing and my cats get freaked out for no reason. It gets cold, and for reference, I live on the sixth floor. If it's 70 degrees outside, I might need air conditioning. To this day, I sleep with my bedroom door closed. For some reason, it will randomly open and my cats come in to hide. Maybe it's time to confront Fred. I've been avoiding him for 20 years. Maybe it's time I get a Ouija board and have a chat with him one-on-one. It's better than waking up every day at 3 a.m. Once again, this is a true story. This next story was sent to us by Leah Williams. Thank you, Leah. I have a true story. I was seven at the time, making this more horrifying than ever. I was sat in my room when my parents went out. I was up past my bedtime, so I was scared about saying goodbye. My siblings had all fallen asleep. I waited in the silence. An hour passed. I watched in silence as I heard my door handle turn. I felt a sudden pain in my back as the door swung open. A man whose head was blocked by the bunk bed above me. It was too dark to see, so I assumed it was my dad. I tried to speak, but I couldn't move. The man stumbled and walked towards the bed. Suddenly, he threw his head back and down and looked at me. He stared at my now-widened eyes and slowly tilted his head. He watched me silently, his head tilted at an unnatural angle. Tears fell from my eyes at an alarming rate. I was so scared. My eyes scanned his face as terror overcame my body. He suddenly turned his head to face the door. I watched as the man ran towards the door and slammed it shut, an evil giggle leaving his lips. I was so frightened, I couldn't move, and then he walked back over and sat on my bed. Then the front door opened, and my parents were home. This next story is by Lee, and I've actually been sitting on this one since last October. Lee has also got a story on the very first true horror episode, if you'd like to go listen to that. It's the first story of the episode. So this is Tales from the Shed, Volume 2. Ever since I was a kid, I used to make up fake memories. Nothing much happened back then, so my own head was a vastly more interesting place than the fields of crops and dank woods around my home. I did it so often that I managed to piss off my whole family to the point that all my siblings forbade me from recounting any dreams, memories, or any other fantasies purely because I was so damn annoying. The one place I could go without bothering them and fantasize to myself was that old workshop in the woods. 
I spent a lot of time out there, playing around with rusty tools and enjoying my own little world. Unfortunately, I fantasized so much that I started to question my real memories. And to this day, there are gaps, blank spaces where whatever happened has been lost forever. But lately, some things have resurfaced. Bad things. Things that I would have preferred to stay silent. A few stand out specifically. I was a young kid, maybe about eight, but I don't remember my exact age. I was out in that shed, playing around with a hammer, just breaking shit. I had been out there for who knows how long, but it was getting late. I remember how fast it got dark, like it does in the woods. One minute it was light, and the next, seconds later, it was too dark to even see. I thought I heard footsteps, but I was a kid, and it was probably nothing. That's what I tell myself, at least. It ends there, but the next memory picks up not long after. It couldn't have even been a year, and I was back out there, at the shed again. I don't remember what I was doing. It was like I had just woke up there. This time it was midday, I think, but I was dazed, confused. It was hard to tell. There were definitely steps outside this time, but not normal ones. There was a short step, followed by a long drag through the leaves. Step and drag. Step and drag. They got closer, and I knew they were getting closer, but I just didn't want to move. I just sat there, waiting for what... I don't know. As the steps rounded the corner of the shed, as the figure of a person, or sort of person, enters the doorway, my memory drops off again. But this next one won't go away. And it is vivid. It must have been a few years since the last, because my view is higher off the ground this time. I wasn't even playing this time, just sitting there. I can't remember how I got there or how long I'd been there. My leg hurt like hell, and I think I must have twisted my ankle. It wasn't long this time before I heard the footsteps again. The same one from years ago. Step and drag. Step and drag. Coming up from behind the shed, this time as he rounded the corner into the doorway, my brain didn't save me. Maybe I was too old. Whatever it was, I saw his whole being clearly. He wasn't tall, maybe five foot six. He was old, too old to still be alive. His head was entirely bald. His mismatched skin stretched pale and taut over a thin frame, crisscrossed with strange scars, like sutures. I remember the terror running through my body as his right hand 
with a skin like poorly treated leather stroked my cheek. But I couldn't run. I just didn't want to. I needed to run, to fight, but I couldn't muster up the desire, despite the fact that I did not know this man. Just a few small cuts this time, my little friend. His voice was raspy and so quiet I could barely hear. Even so, I remember every bit. Just a few small cuts. He lifted my leg, took a rusty knife, somehow still wicked sharp, and cut a small, so small strip of skin off the back. My leg burned like he'd poured acid on it, but I still couldn't move. He placed the strip in a jar of clear liquid and started on the other leg. I managed to croak out a whisper too faint to hear. Who are you? I said, but he just grinned, his teeth black with rot, his gums bleeding. He leaned in so close I could smell him. He stank of wet dirt and some chemical smell, so strong it made me dizzy. He whispered in my ear, his breath so foul I gagged. Don't you recognize me, little friend? We've been at this for so long, though. And I did recognize him. This wasn't the first time. Of course, we'd been at it for years. As he started on my other leg, I finally, mercifully, blacked out. When I woke up, I was in the shed. There was no sign of the man. No blood or chemical stink. Not even any scars on the backs of my legs. I told my siblings, too scared to tell my parents. But there were no scars, no proof. They told me to stop with the stories. That I was too old to be crying and making a scene over nightmares. And maybe it was a nightmare. I was just a kid still. Maybe I dozed off in the shed and just had a bad dream, but sometimes I still catch a faint chemical smell in the woods, and sometimes laying in bed at night, I hear a faint sound, step, drag, step, drag, far away, but way, way too close. This next story comes to us from Wales by Andrew Dexter. And Andrew, I tried my best with these Welsh names of places, so please forgive me. I tried Googling pronunciations, but I probably sound awful when I pronounce them. (laughs) But this is The Ghosts of Gladstone Villa. My family and I lived at a large property called Gladstone Villa, in the former mining town of Bargoid, in the Carfilly County borough of the South Wales Valleys in the UK. From 1969 to 1978, we experienced activity that simply defied rational explanation, such as lights going off and on, 
We witnessed electrical cables being pulled, and my grandfather Bill claimed to have had a glass bottle thrown towards him as he entered the main bedroom, missing him by inches. I didn't personally see this myself, but I still recall the time he came from there with the broken bottle in his hands and told us what happened. There was the occasional sighting, but this was very rare indeed. So rare that in all the nine years I was there, I never once saw it, but I did hear it many times in the bedroom. It's still worth mentioning that my mother, Caroline, saw it on at least two occasions. There were also regular footsteps heard in the main bedroom every evening, sometimes during the day when we'd all be downstairs watching TV. One of us would turn the volume down to hear it more clearly, and my grandfather Bill would point at the ceiling and say, He's by here, and he's by there now, trying to make out where the footsteps were coming from exactly. There were five members of the family that were living at Gladstone Villa. My maternal grandfather, William Higgs, known as Bill to family and friends, a retired miner who worked at the local colliery. He was a short, bald man who liked nothing more than to listen to country and western LPs, Johnny Cash and Glenn Campbell and so on. He also liked westerns on TV that starred John Wayne or Clint Eastwood. My maternal grandmother was Rita Higgs. She was a short woman who was a housewife. She was completely teetotal but liked to smoke. She also liked collecting garden gnomes and liked watching soap operas on TV. My mother, Caroline Dexter, met my father at the local bakehouse in Baldwin Street. She was the day shift regularly, and my father worked the night shift. He would stay behind to make her a cup of tea and chat. They dated for three years before they got married on Monday the 1st of April, 1968. The Beatles were number one with Lady Madonna, very apt. They did not get a place of their own, but they decided to live with my grandparents at Gladstone Villa, which was in Cardiff Road. I was born on the 24th of August, 1969, when everyone was listening to the latest number one in the charts, Honky Tonk Woman, by the Rolling Stones. It was soon after that that my mother said strange things started to happen. I was just a baby when she said it all started off rather quietly, like small tapping here and there, but nothing too noticeable. But in time, the activity gradually increased. One time my mother said the family heard a noise, a noise like someone jumping down from the attic and onto the landing. Naturally, thinking that someone was trying to break in, they went to see what was going on. When they got there, they found nobody there, but the hatch to the attic was open. Whatever it was eventually occupied itself in the main bedroom, which, incidentally, was my grandparents' room. It soon made its presence felt by walking around the bedroom, and the sounds of dragging could be heard. One day, my mother went upstairs to that bedroom to get my father up for work so he could get ready for his night shift. When she got there, she was confronted by the sight of the ironing board placed on my father's torso as he slept. When he awoke, he was astonished to find the situation he was in. He suspected my grandfather Bill was playing pranks, but in time he knew my grandfather was not responsible for it, and he told his work friends what was going on there, and it got around town that Gladstone Villa was haunted. My parents separated in 1972, and my father left Gladstone Villa. But it wasn't because of what was going on at Gladstone Villa, it was just a breakdown of the marriage. They finally divorced on the 25th of April, 1975. The British band The Bay City Rollers were number one in the charts with Bye Bye Baby, 
Again, very apt. It would have been amusing but for the fact of what was going on there. I was barely two years old, so I have no memory of my father living at Gladstone Villa. But he would come see me every Saturday to take me to see my paternal grandparents and to the local cinema. Great times, even though the paranormal activity still continued. As I got older, I too witnessed the activity for myself. I actually saw the poltergeist activity. I saw the electrical cables being pulled by unseen forces. I saw the lights going off and on when my grandfather Bill would play records on the Sunday, and the family did for dinner. It would turn the music off. It took exception to the British band Slade and any religious TV shows my grandmother Rita would watch. The local police were also involved. I remember them popping their heads into the attic, hesitating and not going in, but they suggested it was my father playing a prank on the family. A family friend, Mrs. Ivy France. She was more of a friend to my grandmother, Rita. She was very skeptical when my grandmother told her that Gladstone Villa was haunted. I can still remember Ivy going into the main bedroom, looking around and saying it was vibration from the traffic outside causing it. But she was soon to change her mind when she experienced it for herself. It was then she suggested the local press and a medium. The medium was John Matthews, and when he came to Gladstone Villa, he started by asking the family questions. He then began by challenging the spirit to perform by knocking on the ceiling, and sure enough, it responded by knocking back at him. At some point, John went into a trance to try to make contact with it, but he failed to get a name. He later confirmed the obvious that there was indeed a presence there, and it was an earthbound spirit that had unfinished business. A priest by the name of Graham Jones was called to Gladstone Villa. He blessed the property, and after a few prayers, he duly left, and it was quiet for a few short months after that. No incidents. But it did return, and with a vengeance. And this time, it decided to show itself. One evening, my grandfather Bill, my mother Caroline, and I were watching television. My grandmother Rita was reading a book, when all of a sudden, my mother just so happened to look to her left, when she saw the full, solid figure of a monk standing by the doorway. We did not see it as we were otherwise occupied, but she later described it in detail as a monk in typical brown habit, complete with hood over the head, so she didn't see the face. It sounded very much like a 16th century Benedictine monk. Fred Davies was a friend of my grandfather Bill. They worked together at the local colliery, and he would visit most evenings. Fred was a slim man who would wear a flat cap and glasses and smoked homemade cigarettes that hung from his lips as he spoke. He would sit in his favorite chair by the open fire and talk to the family and watch TV with us. One day, Fred was with us, in his usual place by the open fire. I was quietly playing with toys by the sideboard. It was quiet when all of a sudden there was a one very loud bang. It was so loud that Fred ducked his head and I ran to my mother for comfort. When it was quiet, we all went upstairs. My grandfather, Bill, would always be the first and I would be the last. When we got to that bedroom, we found nothing that could account for the noise. Fred later told us that he ducked his head as he thought it was going to come through the ceiling. Fred told us of another experience he had at Gladstone Villa. My grandfather, Bill, liked to look out the landing window that overlooked Cardiff Road and into Bargoid Town Center. This time, Fred joined him. He said he felt something brush past him. When he looked, there was nothing there. 
The most frightening experience I had was when I was alone in that particular room. I made sure the light was on. It was very quiet. I was lying on the bed facing the window that overlooked Cardiff Road when I suddenly felt something heavy pounce on the bottom of the bed. I heard the bed springs go just once and I felt the bed bounce. I didn't look straight away, but when I did, there was nothing there. I went downstairs to tell my family and we all went back up. We saw distinctive paw marks on the bed, like that of an animal. I later found out that my grandfather Bill had a black Labrador called Tovey, who died before I was born. My grandfather Bill and my mother Caroline claimed to have heard a baby crying there, but as I didn't hear that at the time, I took very little notice of what they said. The activity got so bad that my mother, grandmother, and I slept downstairs with the lights on. It was only my grandfather Bill who was supposedly brave enough to sleep there. It was then that he himself had yet another experience in there. He told us that he was lying on the bed when all of a sudden, he couldn't move. He couldn't even shout out to us to help him. This could well have been sleep paralysis, but he said he heard something in the room with him. My grandmother Rita had her own experiences. One day she was upstairs in that room to get my grandfather up. When she watched the boiler door open wide by itself, she didn't stay there to see what it was, but she rushed out of the room. Another occasion, she said, she had the sensation of something pulling from under her foot, like she had stepped on his gown. We had the ghost for so long that my grandmother Rita gave it a pet name. She called him Johnny, and my grandfather Bill would shout out that name to provoke a reaction, but nothing would happen. Ivy Francis's son, Charles, got to hear about what was going on at Gladstone Villa, and he came along with some friends, and with my family's permission, they went into the bedroom. Something frightened one of his friends, and to this day, he still says it's a spooky place. My mother Caroline had an operation and ended up on crutches to support her. The local nurse would tend to her foot. My mother was sat in the chair when the nurse came this day and the nurse knelt down to tend to her and she told my mother to stop holding her. My mother looked at my grandmother Rita in amazement as she was not holding the nurse at all. My mother made her own conclusions that it was Johnny the ghost that was holding her so as not for the nurse to hurt her. The only time I heard the ghost being vocal was the time we were all in the room. One of us wanted to use the bathroom and we couldn't get in there. My grandfather Bill said, he's behind there. I heard quite distinctly the sound of Gregorian chants, and that was it. Nothing more. We left in the summer of 1978 when two local businessmen bought the property in Gladstone Villa was eventually converted into a small hotel, and its name changed to Red's Park Hotel. On the night before we moved, there was one final incident we experienced, as if it knew we were going, and that was its way of saying goodbye. My mother, grandmother, and I got ready to sleep. The light was still on, and we heard the doorknob turning, as if someone was trying to get in. At first, I naturally suspected my grandfather Bill as he was the only one who slept upstairs in that room, and we thought it may have been him playing a prank. I called out to him, but there was no answer, no laugh that would give him away. We then heard our belongings that were packed in the hallway being thrown around. 
The next day we asked Grandfather Bill if it was him playing a joke. He insisted it wasn't him, and to this very day I believe him. I had my 40th birthday at Reds Park Hotel in August 2009 for old times' sake, and it was the female staff that told me about the ghost, and I told them about what happened to me there 30 years before. The staff told me of their own personal experiences, lights going off and on, the odd sighting in room 5, a bride in white was seen, again as with the claims of the baby crying made no sense to me at the time, I did a thorough research of the property in the Cardiff Road area, and I found some very interesting things indeed. I found out from the Bargoy Library and local newspaper archives that Gladstone Villa dates back to 1900, and it was named after the former British Prime Minister William Gladstone. I discovered the previous people that lived there, the Kimiet family, in 1924. The new married couple, Michael and Evelyn Kimiet, and son named Elvin Kimiet, the baby died on the property at just four months old, according to the archives of the Cardiff newspaper, the Western Mail of that year. This explained the baby my mother and grandfather heard in the bedroom. Mrs. Evelyn Kimiet died in 1970, soon after I was born. Maybe this is why all the activity started. I also found that there was a monastery in Baldwin Street where my parents met and worked. And there is a property directly opposite the former Gladstone Villa property in Cardiff Road, dating back to the 16th century. It is now a public house called the Rafa Club. A priest hide is said to be there, but it's sealed up. This explains the monk my mother saw. What I have said here is true. I wouldn't share it if I couldn't possibly back this up, and I have used real names and I have nothing to hide. And all I have said can be verified by the family of those people I mentioned. Sadly, some of the people I have mentioned are no longer with us. I challenge any hardened skeptic and firm non-believer, and I can assure them that they will indeed most certainly question their belief system. Of this I have no doubt at all whatsoever. In fact, I am 100% positive. You may Google this property. It is still there in Cardiff Road, Bargoid, Wales, UK, very near Carfilly in Cardiff. This place needs to be thoroughly investigated and is well worth documenting. I'm quite serious about this, and very sincere. Our next story comes to us from Andrew Parker. Did you guys know I play a dystopian scary lady voice on an amazing podcast called Crypta? Well, now you do. And now you know that Andrew is one of the creators of the show Crypta, which I will plug in the show notes. Andrew has a non-paranormal horror story for us today. Buckle your seatbelts for this one, folks. You're going to need it. A few years ago, my girlfriend Mandy and I went to a little get-together at a friend's house in North Hollywood to play some tabletop games and get drunk. And being the gracious guests that we were, we brought a platter of chicken parmesan sliders to the party. At the time, I lived in Van Nuys, which is about a 20-minute drive from North Hollywood, and both of us were planning on getting way too south to drive back, so we lifted there. I paid the way there, and Mandy would pay the way back. The party was a success, the getting wasted was a success, and the chicken parm sliders were a huge hit, and were decimated very quickly with ardent, drunken fervor. When it came time to leave, Mandy got out her phone and called a lift, and we all went outside and said our goodbyes and we waited. 
Shortly after, two cars pulled up and we got a notification that our lift had arrived. The front car's driver's side window rolled down. Did you call a lift? The driver said in a thick accent I couldn't quite place my finger on. In an intoxicated hurry, the two of us jumped into the car, not wanting to hold up the second car behind it, as the street was very narrow and had no way to get around what was presumably our car. The driver was holding a walkie-talkie to his mouth, saying something in a language I didn't understand, and put it down and turned to us. Where are you headed? He asked us as we buckled our seatbelts. Home, Valerio and Van Nuys, I shot back, just taking this exchange to be typical driver-passenger small talk. If I had been more sober, I may have recognized this as a big red flag, but I didn't. He rolled out and we headed towards the 101 freeway. When we hit the freeway, the driver started driving very erratically, hitting speeds over 80 miles an hour, which which wasn't totally beyond the pale for some Lyft drivers. I had been in cars with much worse drivers with this app, but enough to be somewhat perturbing. I looked over and Mandy was typing something on her phone. Then she handed the phone to me. In the notes app, she'd written, I don't think this is our Lyft. The app doesn't show us as being picked up yet. The car is still at Andy's. I shrugged it off thinking that she was just being paranoid and that the app just hadn't caught up with us yet since Lyft is glitchy sometimes like that. Then her phone rang. A number not previously saved in her phone. A number like when your Lyft driver is calling you and when they are waiting outside and can't find you. She picked up and I guess there was some sort of reception issue because she couldn't hear the person on the other end. So she hung up. She opened the Lyft app, and it still showed the car at our friend's address. I looked around at the car. No Lyft or Uber sticker. No phone mounted with navigation open. Oh shit. I finally began to feel concerned. You know that saying, scared sober? Well, in that moment, that was both of us. We went from a sloppy mess to razor-focused and aware. Stories I'd heard about fake Lyft or Uber drivers picking up drunk people and killing or kidnapping them flashed through my head. I remembered a recent news story about people being kidnapped in the area I was living and being forced into human trafficking. Quickly, I plugged my home address into my phone's navigation to make sure we were heading in the right direction. We were, but I continued watching it to make sure our driver didn't deviate from the route. Because the second he did, I was going to smash this big-ass platter in my lap over the driver's head and shank him through the throat with the biggest, sharpest part after it was broken. I wasn't going to take any chances. The atmosphere in the car had changed from drunk and silly to very, very tense. It was palpable, and he had to have noticed it. I was giving our driver the hairy eyeball in the rearview mirror, watching him closely, waiting for him to give me a reason to brain him, and glancing at my phone to make sure he wasn't going anywhere but where I'd told him. After a few fretful minutes, we began to approach the destination I had given him, Valerio and Van Nuys Boulevard, but he wasn't driving like he was going to take the left he was supposed to. It's the left here, I told the driver. I tightened my grip on the platter, preparing to wallop the guy if he ignored the turn, but he got into the left-hand lane. There was a 7-Eleven on the corner, and recognizing this, Mandy quickly said, here, stop at the 7-Eleven. Quick thinking on her part, this guy wouldn't know where we lived and we'd be making our exit in front of a bunch of cameras and witnesses. 
as there were always at least a couple people loitering in front of this establishment, so it wouldn't be smart for him to try to make a move if that was his plan. He pulled in, and we both jumped out the second the car stopped. Aren't you going to pay me? He asked. You'll be paid through the app, I angrily snapped back at him. I was ready to explode with adrenaline, and it had to have shown on my face and through my body language. Well, I was contracted through the app, he retorted. Yeah, well, that's not how it works. I'm pretty damn sure of that, I said, gripping my battering platter. The anger and stress was radiating off of both of us, so the guy didn't press us, and we hurried off down the street to my place, looking over our shoulders to make sure he wasn't following us. This story has a happy ending, but I can't help but wonder what would have happened if I hadn't been there, and the driver had picked up only the woman who'd called, or who he was talking to on that walkie-talkie. Before we get to our last story, I have to interject with my own quick scary story. If you follow me on Twitter, you already saw this, but I am sitting in my office piecing together this episode. So when my husband needs something, he always lightly knocks on the door and slowly opens it to peek in to see if I'm in the middle of recording. So I hear a knock on the door, much louder than usual, and the door slowly opens. I was only looking out of my periphery and said, hey babe, and got no response. I look up and no one is standing there in the now open doorway. I got that feeling that so many of you have written to me about, that blood running cold, hair standing on end feeling, and I was too scared to move. Finally, after what felt like forever, but was probably only a few seconds, I got up to investigate, telling myself that my husband must have thought I was in the middle of something and must have forgotten to close the door. I go to my kitchen and there he is, doing our taxes and looking freaked out too. I started to explain, and he cut me off and just said, I heard the knocking too. There's been some spooky stuff around here lately. I told him the door had also opened, and we both just stood there, being silent scaredy cats for a moment. Take from that what you will, there's probably an explanation, but I'm super creeped out and very ready to be done with this episode so I can stop being in my haunted office all alone. Now, back to the episode. Our last listener-submitted story tonight is sure to tingle your toes. Thank you, Tony Bell, for sending it in. My mom, sister, and I lived in an apartment in a suburb of Minneapolis called Excelsior. Although it was a wealthy suburb, we lived on the one poor street in town. There were three of us in a two-bedroom apartment with my mom sleeping on a pullout in the living room, while my sister and I each had a bedroom. Mom worked two jobs to pay the bills, and both my sister and I worked starting at the age of 14. Our place was on the second floor of a three-story building. There was a kid a year or two younger than me living in the bedroom above mine on the third floor. I didn't know him, but my friend Corey knew him. One Halloween, that kid put a cutout of a goat-headed demon in his window. It was all gray, with a dark mane of hair and its hands were raised up under its chin like it was wringing them in anticipation. It always seemed like it was staring at me. I remember telling my mom about it. She was always fascinated by the occult. She mentioned that she hadn't seen it, but she also forgot to look. Halloween came and went that year, and the kid never took that goat-headed demon out of his window. It just kept on staring at me. It was creepy as heck and made all the creepier 
when you realize my bed was up against the window in my bedroom, which meant that that thing was directly over me while I slept. Of course, it wasn't that big of a deal, it was just a scary cardboard cutout. During those years, I struggled with depression. I would sit in my room for hours, even days at a time, and wonder why no one loved me, why I was so worthless, and what good I could possibly offer the world. I struggled with this for a long time. There was one day I will never forget where I was sitting on my bed, just inconsolable. I got up to go to the bathroom, just across the hall from my room, and by the time I was standing in the bathroom, I couldn't remember why I was so sad. It was like that a lot. I was always at my worst in my room. A couple years later, I was working mornings at the local pizza hut. It was a Saturday. I woke up early, earlier than I normally would have. My mom worked nights, so she wasn't home yet. There was something off in my room. Things were out of place. My pillows were on the floor. Clothes I had dropped on the floor were on my bed. Everything seemed hazy, almost like there was a filter of static in my room. I reached for my cats. When something seems weird or off, I always reach for my cats. If they weren't freaking out, then everything is okay. My cats were freaking out. They jumped off my bed and clawed at the door desperately to get out of my room. That's when I saw it. It's still hard to describe almost 30 years later. There was a spherical entity floating over my bed. It was like a ball-shaped hole in the static that had encompassed my room. If the rest of my room was hazy, this thing was diamond clear. It was as if the rest of my room looked to be in standard definition and the sphere was in HD. And the best way I can describe it was that it emanated oppression. That's what I felt. A palpable, physical force of oppression. The only thing I knew for sure was that this thing hated me. I bolted. I moved so fast to get out of my room that I don't remember my feet touching the floor. I made it to the living room and dove over the sofa, crashing onto the floor. I slammed the door to my room behind me and hid on the living room floor, waiting for whatever it was to chase me out. I had no plan. I just didn't know what to do. Luckily for me, it never came out. Once my fear and panic subsided, I passed out on the floor. When I woke up, I investigated my room. Whatever it was, it was gone. The room was still off somehow, but it wasn't there anymore. I went to work, and when I came home, everything seemed normal again. I had a pastor friend come and bless my room a day later. My friend Corey the guy who knew the kid who lived in the room above me eventually got a job at the same pizza hut I worked at. One day we were chatting about the kid and I mentioned how he had the scary cutout in his window that Halloween. Corey screwed up his face at me. He said he never had any cutout of a demon in his window. It occurred to me then 
that no one else ever saw it. Only I saw it. And it saw me. And for the last small segment of this week's episode, here I am telling you about the Bennington Triangle. I recently read an article on Patreon for my true crime ASMR series about unsolved disappearances. It really sent me down a rabbit hole for other similar cases. I know you're all fans of horror, so I assume most of you are also true crime fans. So I know you're all old salts when it comes to some of the more famous cases. I won't throw D.B. Coopers and Mary Celeste's at you. Hopefully these are cases that you haven't heard as much about. I'm going to specifically focus on the Bennington Triangle. The Bennington Triangle is an area of southwest Vermont here in the U.S. The area isn't an exact triangle, per se. It was just the term the author, Joseph A. Citro, came up with in 1992 to describe an area of Vermont where several unsolved and mysterious disappearances occurred between 1945 and 1950. The first known disappearance during this time was that of Mitty Rivers. I couldn't find much about poor Mitty. I found him on findagrave.com, but there was no actual picture, and they didn't know his birth date. His death date is listed as November 12, 1945, which is the day he disappeared. That day, Mitty, a very experienced outdoorsman, was guiding a group of four hunters up the mountains. The hunting trip went without incident, but on their way back down the mountain, Mitty got ahead of the group and vanished. The only evidence ever found was a single rifle cartridge in a stream. They believe that Mitty leaned over the stream for some reason and the cartridge fell out of his pocket. The second recorded disappearance is also the most famous of all these cases, and it is that of Paula Weldon. Paula Jean Weldon was born October 19, 1928. She was the eldest of four daughters, born to William Archibald Weldon and his wife, Jean Douglas. In 1946, Paula was a sophomore at Bennington College. In fact, her dormitory was Dewey House, and it's still there today. If you're in the area, you should go check it out. She was an art major, but was seriously considering changing her major to botany, which her parents were not happy with. It's alleged that she and her roommate had a bit of a codependent relationship, and they decided to branch out to different friend groups. Paula worked part-time in the dining hall in the commons on campus. During her shift on December 1st, 1946, Paula decided she wanted to go hiking on what's called the Long Trail, the same area that Mitty Rivers went missing. Paula tried to get some of her new friends to go with her that day, but they were all busy, so she decided to go alone. Paula returned to her dorm before her walk to change her clothes. She put on clothing that was appropriate for daytime weather, but would not have been warm enough for the drop in climate after sunset. She didn't pack any sort of bag, she didn't bring any extra clothes or extra money. She had only prepared to be gone for a short hike on the trail. Paula walked down to the campus driveway and hitched a ride to State Route 67A, 
near the college entrance in North Bennington in a point on State Route 9 near the Furnace Bridge between downtown Bennington and Woodford Hollow. Local contractor Louis Knapp picked her up and drove her as far as his house on Route 9, about 2.5 miles, or 4 kilometers, from the Long Trail. From this point, Weldon either hitchhiked or walked the rest of the way to the start of the Long Trail in Woodford Hollow. From there, she approached a group of hikers and asked them a few questions about the trail. She headed north on a section of the trail now known as Harbor Road. There are no confirmed sightings of Paula past the Faye Fuller camp. The search for Paula didn't begin until the next morning. Her roommate had assumed she had gone to the library to study, and she went to bed. The next morning, when she saw that Paula had never come home, she alerted campus authorities. It wasn't discovered until a couple of days later that she had even gone on a hike alone when one of the hikers she had approached recognized her photograph in the newspaper and came forward. In 1946, there was no state police organization yet in Vermont, so it was up to only the county sheriff and a state investigator to solve the case. Paula's father pressed the governor to bring in more help from other law enforcement agencies. This led to Connecticut's governor lending the aid of Connecticut State Policewoman Dorothy Scoville and Detective Robert Rundle. They interviewed everyone who said they had any contact with Paula that day, but nothing came of the investigation. Investigators discovered that one of the last people to see Paula alive was a man who lived along Harbor Road. He was in the midst of an argument with his girlfriend when she walked by. The man stormed off in a jealous rage shortly thereafter, and depending on different statements he made, he went to his shack and spent the evening by himself, or he drove his truck up the travel portion of the trail where Paula was heading. He lied to the police on several occasions and was a person of interest in 1946 and again in 1952 when the case was revisited. Reportedly, he told at least two people that he knew within a hundred feet where Paula was buried, but later claimed it was just idle talk. When no evidence was found that a crime had actually been committed, no body was ever discovered and no forensic clues were identified. This avenue of the investigation ended. There are several theories about Paula's death, including that she was in exceptional high spirits that day, which led some people to believe that she ran off with a secret lover. Some say she was, in fact, the opposite of high-spirited, that she was depressed and may have gone off to commit suicide. There are even speculations about her maybe having suffered amnesia. The bottom line is, no trace has ever been found of Paula Jean Weldon. Third in the list of disappearances is James Tedford, James is the person who drew me to talking about the Bennington Triangle. I found his name on a list of disappeared persons, and his story caught my eye, because his wife also disappeared. His wife went missing before he did. So let's talk a little about that first. Pearl Tedford was 28 years old when she went missing. Her husband, James, was much older at age 56. They lived in Fletchertown, Franklin, Vermont. James had just wrapped up his second tour of duty in the military, 
nearing the end of World War II and returned home to find Pearl gone. They had been renting a house in Fletchertown, and he found the place abandoned. His family claimed to have no knowledge of her disappearance. They said that the last time they saw her, she was heading to the Amico store in Franklin. I couldn't find any other details about Pearl. I don't know if there was a search or if there was even ever a police report filed. I did find a Pearl Tedford on mylife.com, which is a sort of, it's kind of like ancestry.com, I think. She's currently 93 years old and single. Are they the same person? Did Pearl just get tired of the loneliness that comes with being the wife of a military man? If you know anything, please let me know. I would sure like to know what happened to Pearl. But Pearl is not who we're here to discuss. We are here to talk about James and how he seemed to have literally disappeared into thin air. James went to visit family in St. Albans, Vermont. He boarded a bus on his way to a retirement home in Bennington. The whole trip was supposed to take about eight hours, and it just so happened to pass through the Green Mountain National Forest, where our last two victims were last seen. James was seen by 14 other passengers on the bus. He had luggage in the luggage rack. They all testified to seeing him sleeping in his seat. It was even mentioned that he was definitely on the bus after the last bus stop before Bennington, and he never left his seat. But by the time the bus got to Bennington, James was gone. His luggage was still in the rack. A bus timetable was found on his empty seat. On December 1st, 1949, three years to the day that Paula Weldon went missing, James Tedford's family reported him missing. No trace of him was ever found. The fourth person to disappear in the area was eight-year-old Paul Jeffson. On October 12, 1950, little Paul accompanied his mother in the truck to go feed some pigs. Whose pigs? I have no idea. This is another one where there just isn't a lot of information. Ms. Jeffson left Paul in the truck while she went to feed said pigs. She said she was gone for maybe an hour, and when she returned to the truck, Paul was gone. Search parties were formed to search for him, but nothing was ever found. He was wearing a bright red jacket when he disappeared, which should have been easily visible, but they never found that either. The last documented victim of the Bennington Triangle was Mrs. Frida Langer. Frida disappeared only 16 days after little Paul Jeffson disappeared. Frida, her husband Max, and her cousin Herbert Eisner were on a camping and hunting trip near the Somerset Reservoir. On October 28, 1950, Frida and Herbert decided to go on a hike. During their hike, Herbert says that Frida fell into a stream and insisted on returning to the campsite to change out of her wet clothes. She told him to wait right there while she ran back to camp, and she would come back so they could continue their hike. Herbert waited a while until he concluded that Frida wasn't coming back, so he returned to the camp and found that Frida was gone. Max hadn't ever seen her return. The search for Frida was the most intense I've found so far. I actually found the original article from a local newspaper called the Berkshire Eagle. 
two helicopters and one plane from the Westover Air Force Base in Massachusetts came to help look. The plane landed on the reservoir and let out a crew that began to search the shore. The speculation was that Frida had fallen into the water, which was only 150 feet from their campsite. The article was published on October 31st, over two weeks after her disappearance, and it states that some 50 men, including state troopers and game wardens, discontinued the search at dusk last night. They plan to resume today. Her husband, Max, was offering a $100 reward, which in today's money I looked up, it translates to about $1,017. At the time of the article, Max was still asking for more volunteers, and he was holding out hope that his wife was still alive. The article states that the helicopter searched the hardwoods area, as well as the swamp. Unlike all of the other stories, though, they actually found Frida. On May 12, 1951, her body was found near Somerset Reservoir. It was found in an area that had already been searched extensively. No cause of death could be found because of the poor condition of her body. If you decide to look up this story on your own, you'll see some statements that her body was quite the opposite and in pristine condition. I tend to believe the former. It just seems a little too poetic and weird that she would be found perfectly preserved. So what was going on in the Bennington Triangle? Was there some sort of serial killer operating in the area during these five years? All of the victims were so different that I don't feel like that's likely. Serial killers tend to have a type, a profile, if you will. Not always, but, you know, if you look into it, they, they tend to. I feel like James Tedford is definitely the wild card. The rest can maybe be explained by something in nature, you know, getting lost, falling into a crevasse or a stream or the reservoir. But James just disappeared off a moving bus according to 14 other passengers. The fact that his wife also seemingly disappeared into thin air is so strange. If you guys have any more info or theories about the Bennington Triangle, please feel free to reach out to me, whether it be on social media or through email. I'm so eager to hear what you think. And if I have any listeners who happen to live near the area, I mean, be careful, but if you could like... Tell me any more, you know, local insider knowledge, maybe, or even send some pictures. That would be amazing. I will put them up on the Instagram page. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this week's mashup of true stories and true crime. I hope you like the sounds being played this week to help you drift off to sleep as well. I went for a sort of a study room slash library feeling typing, pages turning, and writing. In fact, the typing you're listening to is me writing this script right now. (laughs) Remember, if you have any requests for specific soothing sounds that you like to drift off to, you can visit scaryoutosleep.com and go to the contact page and send me a suggestion. I would love that. And of course, as always, I have my Patreon shoutouts. 
My love and gratitude goes out to Shaylin Clancy, Linus Svensson, Amy Gill, Jennifer Trevino, Sergio Saucedo, Mason Rowe, and Robert Wayman. You guys are absolutely incredible, and as always, I wish I could give you a big warm hug right now. Offer codes for Wix and Care of will be in my show notes. And remember, when you use my offer codes, it really helps me out. So if, if you're in the market for either of these items, it would be great if you could use my codes. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Scary to Sleep. You can follow my personal page at Shelby B. Scott. Join the Facebook group. I really hope we have some good discussions this week about these true stories. I want to hear your input and talk paranormal with you. So go to facebook.com slash groups slash scare you to sleep. I think that's all for now. Now, go get some sleep. Sweet dreams. Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out. And we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now. 